The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Hey, it's November 30th. Week 13 begins Thursday night. Sorry I missed Wednesday. Usually I do Wednesday, not Thursday. This week, no Wednesday. We're here Thursday. Either way, if you're listening, thank you. What you didn't get yesterday, you're getting today. So get ready to get your money's worth. Five down territory format, just because I couldn't think of any better way to do it. Not a whole lot happening today, it feels like, simply because Tuesday was so crazy with the Eli Manning benching, and then Wednesday... A lot of reaction to it, and John Mara said what he had to say, which he had to say. He had to say they're not tanking. He had to say a lot of things, and ultimately, the Giants have to take the L on this one. They'll be studying that case in PR classes, sports management programs for decades to come. What a mess. Although, there's not much to study. Just everything they did, do the opposite, and you'll be okay. I want to stay in the NFC East, though, because... Week 13 begins with the Cowboys hosting Washington. And I had been getting emails from people over the past few weeks about this dynamic. And I think I may have even mentioned it here on PFTPM. Probably a question at some point from a listener via Twitter framing up the issue of the number of consecutive quarters during which the Cowboys opponents have not been called for offensive holding. So I finally went back and looked week to week. Every week of the season, offensive holding penalties called against Cowboy opponents. And week one, there were two of them when the Cowboys beat the Giants, two on the Giants. Week two, there was one when the Cowboys were blown out by the Broncos. Week three, there were two on the Cardinals. That was the Monday night game. Remember the Jerry Jones look at the camera with the big smile? It's all my idea. Look at me. We're kneeling before the anthem. All my idea. That's not a very good Jerry Jones. It's close. It's still, I end up sounding like Ross Perot. And if you remember who Ross Perot is, congratulations, you're old like me. After that, after week three, they turned off the faucet. Week four against the Rams, no offensive holding penalties called on the L.A. offense. Packers the following week, none. 49ers after the bye, none. Washington, none. Chiefs, none. Falcons won with an asterisk. It was called on receiver Mohamed Sanu, wiping out a touchdown in garbage time, like final drive of the game. Would have been 34-7 instead of 27-7. Eagles, none. Chargers, Thanksgiving Day, none. And look, I haven't gone back and charted it for every team over the past 10 weeks. The Cowboys have had offensive holding penalties all along the way. The Eagles game, they didn't have any. But the other games, they did, for the most part. I don't need to look at every single game. I don't need 
to look at every box score and search the term holding, which is the very low-tech way of finding the holding penalties. Right? You go in your browser and you search holding. Click, 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 and you find them all. At some point in 10 weeks, there's going to be a holding penalty thrown on an interior offensive lineman or a tackle, any of the five standard offensive line positions. There hasn't been holding called on any of the standard in-formation blockers for the Cowboys' opponents for 10 weeks. And I don't know why. I don't have an explanation. I know what Cowboys fans would say. Cowboys fans would say there's some sort of retaliation going on for all the problems that Jerry Jones is causing. That's the most obvious explanation. The league office controls the officiating department. Jerry Jones currently is at war with the league office. So the officiating department is sticking it to him. Now, it'd be fascinating to see whether and to what extent any officials have been downgraded for missing offensive holding penalties that otherwise would have been called on Cowboys opponents. Because we hear this all the time, and you see it all the time. They could call holding anytime they want. And the farther it's called from the point of attack, the more suspect it becomes. I mean, who cares? If it's a run to the right around the edge, who cares if the left tackle is grabbing the jersey of a guy who's got no chance to be involved in the play? Who cares? But there's always holding. And to go that many games with no holding penalties called by the opposing offense, specifically the five linemen and tight ends who are blocking the defensive linemen and the defensive ends, it's odd. And it's one of the things to watch tonight. Will there be a correction? Will there be a reaction? Will there be a holding penalty called against any of the Washington offensive linemen? And at what point does the league get asked about it? I guess there's enough out there to ask. I guess it's become sufficiently conspicuous. How does this happen? Is the league aware of it? Have any officials been downgraded for missing offensive holding calls? There was a still frame somebody sent me earlier this week. I think that's what set off the effort to finally track this down. I think we talked about it earlier this week on the PFTPM podcast. Appeared to be a Chargers offensive lineman clutching and pulling the jersey of a Cowboys defender. No flag. And I understand they miss it, but it can't not happen for 10 weeks and you miss it for 10 weeks. It's happening during these 10 weeks. How can you miss it that many times? And is there some bias, subtle, not so subtle bias against the Cowboys emerging from the fact that Jerry Jones has been making life at the league office a little unpleasant, really beginning with the aftermath of the week three game, because it was after that game that they had meetings aimed at solving the anthem situation and Jerry Jones filibustered and took over and said that everyone should do what the Cowboys did and That was when, I think, for some, Jerry Jones' overall irritation toward his colleagues and his partners started to really ramp up, although it had already been an issue. It it seemed to take off more after that. And it was after that that all of a sudden his team's not getting any offensive holding calls. Just odd. Just odd. That's all I'm saying. It's odd. It's unusual. And we'll be keeping an eye on it tonight. I I hate to say that that's one of the main reasons to watch Thursday Night Football. And look, I'm not contractually required to sell the Thursday night game. 
It's week 13. There aren't many primetime big circumstance games left. This has playoff implications in a roundabout way. The loser's done. The winner still may be done. But the loser at 5-7, and seven, almost definitely done. Although I think we've seen some teams resurrect from 5-7 and seven in the past. But we're getting down to the end here of Thursday Night Football. Next week is a great one. The Saints at the Falcons, another NBC game. That one will sell itself. The next week, that would be the week where maybe you find something else to do. That's the Broncos at the Colts. And I will not even try to sell that one. And that's the last Thursday night game. There's only two Thursday night games left. We'll start to have some Saturday games. There are a pair of Saturday games on the 16th of December and a pair of Saturday games on the 23rd of December. But as Thursday goes, it's three more. This week, next week, the following week. And the last week doesn't count. Although two weeks from now, I have a feeling I'll be, I'll be coming up with something. I'll find a reason for you to watch Broncos Colts. I got 14 days to figure that out. For now, Washington Cowboys, 7.30 p.m. Eastern tonight on NBC. Football night in Dallas. Rodney Harris and Tony Dungy down there on scene. And will there be a holding penalty called against the Washington offensive line or tight ends? That's first down. Second down. There isn't a widespread perception this year that there's an issue with NFL officiating because there hasn't been a major blunder that has created a dramatic and widespread and notorious embarrassment for the league. Remember a couple of years ago, there was the clock error in the Chargers-Steelers game near the end, and there was the K.J. Wright batting the ball out of the end zone and the official looking right at it and didn't realize it was an illegal bat. There were several outcomes that happened in primetime games that that were particularly embarrassing to the league. This year, the biggest embarrassment has come from the chronic inability to apply the replay standard the right way. And it's yet to hurt the NFL in a big spot. It hasn't determined the outcome of a big primetime game. It hasn't generated a firestorm. But it, it maybe should. I mean, you've got the two former NFL VPs of officiating, two of the last three. Carl Johnson was the one in the middle. He's still working for the NFL as a game official. Mike Pereira and Dean Blandino, both at Fox. And they're not afraid to point out when the league gets it wrong. And thank God they're there and they have that, that authority to do so. Because the league office is currently screwing this up. And it's easy to blame Al River on because he's in charge. But you know what? The job wasn't designed for him. The job was designed for Dean Blandino. So once Blandino left, they didn't adjust it. They just said, well, we got to find somebody to do this job. And I don't think Al River on suited for the job. As evidenced by the fact that we've now had, not once but twice, Austin Severian Jenkins had touchdowns taken away from him as a result of the replay review process supervised by Al Riveron of the league office. And it was Blandino and Pereira who came out and said, Safarian Jenkins got screwed again. This one at least wasn't a touchback for the opposing defense. Remember the Jets-Patriots game? Safarian Jenkins fumbling the ball as he's making it toward the end zone, ruling on the field a touchdown because he had gotten the ball back in his control before he went out of bounds in the end zone. Riveron overturned it which means there was clear and obvious evidence that he failed to get the ball back in his possession, and that was just wrong. 
Now, more recently, Safarian Jenkins catching a ball while he was falling out of ground, out, out of bounds or out of grounds, out of bounds, on the ground, out of bounds. And that was overturned. And Pereira and Blandino say it shouldn't have been. And I look, I understand that it's only going to be a big deal if it happens on the final play of a Sunday night football game or if it happens on the final drive of a playoff game. And it felt for a while like they were getting it under control. If anything, it felt like they were upholding maybe when they shouldn't because there was the Kenny Galladay catch as the Lions were trying to mount a comeback on Thanksgiving Day that I thought I thought was clear and obvious not a catch, but they didn't overturn it. And, that, and it was encouraging because, okay, they're applying the standard. Maybe they're applying the standard a little bit too aggressively, but I'd rather they apply the clear and obvious too aggressively than just treat the replay process as an opportunity to overturn anything they feel like overturning with just no rhyme or reason, completely arbitrary. And now, you know, every time I feel like they've gotten it under control, there's a screwy outcome. And if Al Riveron just doesn't have the ability to make consistent, reliable decisions in real time, applying the appropriate standard, they got to find somebody else to do it. Bring back Blandino. Throw a bunch of money at him. I mean, the problem is when you have somebody who's in that job who is really good at it, you take it for granted. And then you find out that, you know, it may be hard to find somebody else who can do the job the way it needs to be done. And I, I'm trying not to criticize Al Riveron. I just think it's a bigger job. It's a tougher job than people realize. And I just don't think Riveron is suited for it. Maybe he'd be a fine lieutenant, which is what he was. But I don't think he's got the skills to be the captain. And I don't know who does. Trust me, I know it's tough. And I know there's always a temptation to say, well, if you could do it better yourself, do it. I don't want to do it. I don't aspire to be in that kind of a pressure-packed situation with that kind of accountability. Now, maybe there is no accountability. And if it wasn't for Blandino and Pereira, where would the accountability even be? It'll be interesting to see what the league does after the season. Will they make changes to that function? They need to. They need to. I'm not saying that Riveron should be fired, but they need somebody else in there. Throw a bunch of money at Blandino. Get him out of his Fox contract. Bring him back. I mean, the guy was working extremely hard because on top of the pressure of being in charge of the command center on game days, you've got to supervise officials. you got to do this. you got to, you got to be the conduit to the fans and the media. And frankly, Al Riveron has not been a very visible conduit. I haven't asked for him yet this season. Maybe I should. I think the answer will be no. They do weekly videos that are made available to the media on Fridays. And to put it as gently as I can, those things are now useless. And maybe it's because there aren't enough controversial calls, but I don't get anything out of them. I don't even watch them anymore. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe at some point in the last few weeks they've become useful. But after four or five, six of them, and I realized, oh my God, this just isn't, this isn't valuable. This isn't a worthwhile use of my time anymore. This is very basic, rudimentary, fundamental stuff that really doesn't tell me, really doesn't teach me. Blandino taught me. These videos aren't teaching me. That's as big of an indictment. Not as big, almost as big as getting the replay review calls wrong. And I, I don't care if the... I can live without a useful weekly officiating video, although I'd like to have one. I definitely want 
clear, consistent, reliable application of the replay review standard. There are now three times this year there were major, major failures. Twice with Austin Fisferi and Jenkins, once with the Zach Miller touchdown catch, which clearly was a catch, which clearly did not hit the ground. And Al Riveron tried his damnedest on multiple occasions to convince people that the football hit the ground, and it didn't. And even if it did, it was not clear and obvious that it did, which is the standard. Anytime you have to squint to see what the VP of officiating is talking about in defending a decision to overturn a ruling on the field, that means it's not clear and obvious. Third down. We haven't heard much lately about the Jameis Winston personal conduct policy investigation. I mean, the NFL is not going to give periodic updates. Jameis Winston addressed the media about it on Thursday for the first time. And he said that he has no fear of a suspension. He should. Right? I mean, sometimes the absence of fear indicates the presence of ignorance. I don't think he realizes what he's potentially caught up in when it comes to the league office and its ability to mete out discipline whenever, wherever, however it wants on a reduced standard of proof. Now, on one of these media briefings that they do at one point during the Ezekiel Elliott saga, Joe Lockhart was trying to explain that the the standard of credible evidence is somewhere between a preponderance of the evidence, which is the civil standard of proof, 5149, and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't think credible evidence falls in there. I think credible evidence is essentially the lowest level probable cause type of, of evidence, especially when you look at the Elliott case. You find one piece of evidence that you can cling to and say this is proof that the guy did it, and you can ignore contradictory evidence, even if that contradictory evidence comes from the same person who's given you the credible evidence, you can ignore it all, and you can say, hey, I've found credible evidence to believe the guy did it. So just because Jameis Winston says he didn't do it, just because Ronald Darby issued a statement that Jameis Winston didn't do it, and just as a refresher, he's accused of groping a female Uber driver in Arizona in early 2016. You can deny it all you want. Ezekiel Elliott denied it. What did it get him? He's going to be watching the game tonight on TV. Fourth game of a six-game suspension. So, Jameis, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Every player should be afraid. And any player out there, and I'm going to choose my words carefully here, not that I usually do, because anyone who commits wrongdoing deserves to face the consequences. However, if you do find yourself in a jam and you're aware of it before the league becomes aware of it and you have someone who has potential rights that were violated that could be compensated with a civil settlement, the smart thing to do at that point, and again, I'm not condoning the behavior, but you got to manage your career. If there's a way that you can settle that case and the league never finds out about it, how do you not at least have that on your menu of options? And is it justice to pay somebody a bunch of money as compensation for groping them or doing something you shouldn't have done? Is that justice? Well, if the person who was groped thinks it's justice, then it's justice. I mean, justice gets meted out all the time that way. The civil justice system is premised on people feeling that they have gotten a fair day in court even if they never have the day in court, even if they trade the day in court in for 
a large cash payment. Happens all the time. Civil justice. Meeting out justice in a civil way. No shotguns involved, no eye for an eye, no tooth for a tooth. A civil adult system of giving people justice. And if you have somebody out there who's looking for justice from you and you play in the NFL and their effort to get justice eventually is going to result in a phone call to 345 Park Avenue, the sooner you get your lawyers to intervene and write a check in the amount of justice, zero dollars and zero cents, or what is it, zero slash 100? I never understood what the hell that is. Why do we do that on a check? Why, why do we feel compelled? We're not done writing a check and we told the dude we do zero, zero slash 100. Who cares about pennies? It's stupid. How many, how many people are writing checks for dollars plus like 28 cents? I guess some people still are. Do people still write checks? Anyway, my point is this. And again, let me just reiterate this one more time. Anyone who is engaged in wrongdoing deserves to face the consequences. But there are occasions where you can manage your own consequences. And if you can essentially self-punish by settling the case and getting an agreement that the alleged victim is not going to call up 345 Park Avenue, I mean, Ezekiel Elliott could have done the same thing. He's lost like $600,000 in salary. I'd like to think that if he'd offered Tiffany Thompson $600,000 a year ago, she doesn't agree to be interviewed by the NFL six different times. And they can't make her, right? They love to hide behind that when it's time to give the player fair process. Well, we can't make her testify. Oh, oh, we didn't ask her. Sure. No, we didn't bother to ask her. But we also can't make her. So, you know, you can't make us if we can't make her. Well, that cuts both ways. Because if you intervene and you give that person justice, and really from Tiffany Thompson's standpoint, what, what is closer to justice for her? What, what justice did she get by subjecting herself to the NFL's investigative process and having all of this stuff come out, hundreds of pages of interview reports and the perception that she's told varying stories? Would it have been better to just have enough money to buy your first house? I mean, again, that's up to the individual. Each individual has to make that decision. If you want somebody to be exposed who's done something wrong, you have every right to do it. But there is another way that, that I, I'm, and, and here's the thing. We don't know how many other players are already doing that because we never find out about any of it. And I know that there have been stories of players getting extorted all the time. Remember Robert Griffin III was involved in something like that? There was a guy that was extorting him a couple of years ago and he participated, Griffin participated in the effort to catch the guy. There are plenty of efforts to extort players all the time. But I think it would be naive to assume there also aren't occasions where a player has done something he shouldn't have done and a player gets very candid, frank advice from those responsible for helping the player stay on the field and justice is dispensed via the writing of a check that keeps the person who would have otherwise had every right to go straight to 345 Park Avenue from doing so. All right. To summarize, Jameis Winston should be very concerned. And any player who is accused of wrongdoing with the league office aware and the league office investigating should be very concerned because the league can do whatever the league wants to do. 
And hopefully one of these days, the league will want to put in place a more fair process for issuing discipline against players who have not been arrested or charged or even sued in civil court. Fourth down. I said this earlier in the week. I still can't recall. You know, when you talk 15 hours a day, no, 15 hours a week, right? 15 hours a week, three times five, three hours a day, five, yeah, 15 hours a week on PFT Live. And then, I don't know, another five hours a week on the PFTM podcast. You kind of forget where you said what you said. But at one point I made the argument, and now I remember, the more I talk about it, it kind of comes back to me. I was sitting with Chris Sims Monday, and I said, one of my concerns about the Eagles is they've had it too easy. They're winning too easily. They, they need, at some point, not to lose. I'm not going to go to LaShawn McCoy and say it would be good for them to lose. I don't think it's ever good to lose. It would be good for them to find themselves in a close game where they have to find a way to focus with the game on the line, where they have to find a way to execute with the game on the line, where they have to find a way to keep the other team out of the end zone with the game on the line. Because you're not going to win every playoff game by 30 points. If they do, great. But I think they're better off having been in a close game at some point, a close game that feels like a playoff game, like it would be great for them to be down 10 points in the fourth quarter Sunday night at Seattle and come back and win. That would be great. That would carry them into the postseason with the kind of confidence they need to know that if they do fall behind late in a game where your season's on the line, we've been here before. We're not going to be freaked out by it. We know what it feels like to be down 10 points in the fourth quarter. I mention all that because MDS wrote the item, I think it was MDS at PFT today, about the Eagles winning four straight games by 20 or more points. And if they beat the Eagles, if they beat the, if they beat the, if if they beat the Seahawks by 20 or more points, it'll be the fifth consecutive 20 point victory, which would tie an NFL record that was set 19 years ago by the greatest show offs on turf, the St. Louis Rams. And look. The Rams ultimately found themselves in some close games, and it got a little hairy. Remember that Tampa Bay NFC Championship game? The game that indirectly brought us the screwed up what's a catch, what's not a catch, because they tried to expand the rule because Bert Emanuel caught a pass and the ball touched the ground, and it used to be if it touches the ground at all, it's incomplete. So let's come up with a way that a guy can make the catch and the ball can touch the ground and it's not incomplete. Now we don't know what the hell we're doing. That was all from that game. 11-5 to was the final. I have a feeling that game, being in a close game like that, because the week before they just blew the Vikings off the field. I think the score was 49-37, to and it wasn't that close. But I think that NFC Championship game may have prepared the Rams for Super Bowl 34 when they found themselves in a close game back and forth against the Titans. So, for the first time since the greatest show-offs on turf, we have the Eagles with four straight 20-plus point victories, and they can tie it if they beat the Seahawks by 20 or more. But let me tell you, I think the Seahawks are going to win. I got the Seahawks straight up. If you want to give me the Seahawks in 20, we can do some business in the appropriate jurisdiction where that kind of business is allowed. Pretty pretty soon everywhere. I think that the hearing before the Supreme Court is next week on the New Jersey sports wagering case and may just be a matter of time before sports wagering becomes legal state by state. For now, though, you want to give me 20 in a wagering legal state, I'll take the 20. I think the Seahawks are going to win. But if they should lose by 20 or more, the Eagles will have matched the greatest show-offs on turf. Fifth down. This Tennessee coaching search really doesn't have anything to do with the NFL, but it still could. 
it still could. Now, this one is more protracted and more embarrassing than another high-profile coaching search that I recall very vividly from 11 years ago. Because back in 2006, Rich Rodriguez was still the head coach at West Virginia University. And it felt like the Mountaineers were in the ballpark for a national championship. And there was a a vibe. Because I remember when all the really good schools left the Big East and people lost their minds. Miami's gone and Boston College is gone. And who else left? Pitt left. Virginia Tech left. Pitt eventually left. Pitt was still there at the time. I wish they'd left in hindsight before the 2007 game. But I knew the way it was set up. When you clear out Virginia Tech, when you clear out Miami, when you clear out Boston College, although they were a lesser threat than the other two, somebody fills the vacuum and somebody takes over. And it basically became West Virginia and Louisville that took over the Big East that had the automatic berth in the BCS Bowl. And... I knew that was going to end at some point. I knew it wasn't sustainable. But in the final years of that arrangement, in a watered-down Big East, it's like, this is great. West Virginia is going to be playing in January 1st bowl games and eventually have a shot in a national championship. And Rich Rodriguez has it going on. And, hey, Alabama, keep your damn hands off our coach. It was right around now, too, back in 2006. We started to sweat it out. Alabama comes sniffing around Rich Rodriguez, get the hell out of here, Alabama. We don't want anything to do with you. But it'd be naive not to admit that Alabama, even on somewhat hard times, Alabama still regarded as a better overall program, a more prominent program in the SEC. And I remember thinking, well, how can this guy say no to going to Alabama? And then he did say no. Now he said yes to Michigan a year later. That's another story altogether. But he did say no to Alabama. And Alabama came out of that wounded. And I've been thinking about that because right now Tennessee's wounded. Tennessee's more wounded than Alabama was. Because all Alabama had was Rich Rodriguez saying, no, thank you. I'm staying here at West Virginia. Tennessee's been in this weird blender of embarrassment and rejection and desperation. And everywhere they turn now, no one's interested. But I mentioned that for a couple of reasons. First of all, John Gruden's still out there. And I don't think John Gruden is interested in Tennessee. I think John Gruden's agent is very interested in periodically creating the impression that John Gruden's interested in Tennessee because whatever Gruden wants, and I still don't know what he wants. For all I know, Gruden's making a power play at ESPN to get Sean McDonough booted and get them to hire another play-by-play guy because Gruden may not like McDonough. At least he doesn't like him as much as he liked Mike Tirico. I mean, there's chatter like that floating around. I don't know if it's accurate. But I don't know what Gruden wants. But you know what? At some point, Tennessee may decide, we're going to move heaven and earth financially. We're going to make John Gruden an offer he can't refuse. What would it take? Somewhere between $10 million and $15 million a year, what would it take? And when you're not paying your players, it's a hell of a lot easier to go out and get a big fish to come coach your program. And I think of John Gruden because ultimately Alabama persuaded Nick Saban to say yes. And I think it's worked out pretty well for Alabama over the last 11 years. So do not despair, Tennessee fans, even though among your boosters is one of the biggest bozos, whose name I won't even mention, who I wish would just go away. It's so obvious 
that the guy's a fraud. It's so obvious what the guy's doing. It becomes more obvious every day. And I think more and more people are figuring it out. But I still won't mention his name. I'm done with him. He's dead to me. Other than that, Tennessee, it'll work out. Everything will be fine. You'll eventually find your coach, and who knows? Maybe they'll plunk down even more money, and maybe John Gruden will finally decide he can't say no to it. At some point, at some point. I mean, I say this about Nick Saban back to the NFL. I say this about Jim Harbaugh back to the NFL. At some point, there is an amount of money that you put on the table that a guy can't say no to. At some point, it's there. Between 10 and $30 million. Not that it's ever going to be 30 but at some point, you add that one additional stack of $100 bills, and the guy says, yes, I'll take it. So... I'm surprised Gruden's name hasn't come up again. I, but I, I mean, I, but we knew what was going on on Sunday when his name came up. Sunday splash report. Somebody's doing a favor for an agent, putting it out there, helping John Gruden advance his agenda. But I can't rule out anything because Tennessee is going to get more and more and more and more desperate. And it's very easy to find that money that is necessary to get the guy you want. Very easy to do it when you don't have to pay your players. All right, time to answer a few questions here before we wrap up this Thursday edition of PFT PM. Uh, let's see. They're actually, I, I have not looked at them. This is one of the days where I did not pre-screen the questions. I did see there were 28 of them. I'm not going to answer all of them. I'm going to answer some of them as soon as the tweet loads, if the tweet ever loads. If it doesn't load, I'm not answering any of them. Let me try it again here. This is always a very well uh well-oiled process. Let's see here. Let me try it again. Here we go. Here are the questions. Is it true if you don't use it, you lose it? Well, it depends on what it is. It depends upon what the definition of it is. At Kobe 3, will the NFL ever allow the rest to call holding on Dallas Cowboys opponents again? Well, Kobe, I hope you've been listening. We've already addressed that when that was first down today. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, at JF15, is the hockey pocky really what it's all about? I don't think it's called the hockey pocky. Jordan, I think you need to research your very stupid and outdated references. It's not the hockey pocky. I'm fairly confident it's not the hockey pocky. Steve Havono wants to know if the Bills should trade for Eli Manning or Mohamed Sanu. Uh, Well, first of all, the trade deadline ended a month ago. Boy, these questions aren't very good today. At the Impact 99, Jeremy usually comes through with something. Let's see what Jeremy has. What likelihood do the Chargers have in winning the West? I think they're going to win the AFC West. They're only a game behind, and they're 5-2 and two over the last seven. I think they're going to win. And I don't think they're going to lose to the Browns again. They lost to the Browns last year, Week 16. I don't think they're going to lose this year to the Browns, who they play this weekend at StubHub Center. And I actually think, for a change, the Chargers fans will outnumber the fans of the visiting team. I doubt there's going to be a huge influx of Browns fans at the StubHub Center on Sunday. At Khalid321, will whoever runs this Twitter account get a Christmas bonus? No, because I run it. Another one from the Impact 99. Good afternoon, Mike. Eli plays in blank next season. My guess is Denver. My guess is Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville makes too much sense. We had Kevin Gilbride, who was the Giants offensive coordinator on PFT Live earlier today. I've got some of his quotes typed up, and I'm going to post something here at PFT at some point before the game begins tonight with 
Gilbride's views on the Eli Manning, Tom Coughlin dynamic. I think there's a strong, strong relationship there. And you look at the Jaguars. They've got everything they need except a quarterback. And as Chris Sims says, Blake Bortles will not put on earth to throw the football. And as I always say to Chris, well, you would know. And then he hits me. Denver, I don't think Denver. I, I, I don't think Eli is into following Peyton's footsteps. I don't think he's interested. I don't think the Broncos are nearly as good as they were when Peyton Manning became the quarterback. I don't think John Elway wants to go back to the Manning well again. John Elway's under a lot of fire in Denver to try to turn this thing around. I don't think getting another Manning who's inching even closer to retirement. Eli would be closer to the end than Peyton was when Peyton took the job, I think, six years ago. I think Eli would be closer to the end. I just don't think the Broncos want it. I don't think Eli wants it. I understand why people are saying it. The one that fascinates me the most, though, is the Steelers. Stats brought this one up yesterday, and I hate to give him credit for it. Because it's actually a decent thought. If Ben Roethlisberger would retire, why would the Steelers not want Eli Manning? He gives them a Band-Aid while they find someone else. They're not going to put Josh Dobbs or Landry Jones out on the field next year as the starter. And Eli Manning has proven he can beat the Patriots. Ben Roethlisberger hasn't. When has Ben Roethlisberger ever beaten the Patriots in a big game? I mean, a couple of regular season games, maybe. But he can't beat the Patriots in the postseason. And Eli Manning is 2-0 and against them. Who else can say they're 2-0 against the Patriots in anything? Maybe preseason. At Uncle Ben, how has Jerry Reese survived this long besides the Super Bowl wins? That's Eli. Well, look. Jerry Reese is in one of the very great positions in sports because the Giants don't fire their general managers. You know, there's a pride that becomes arrogance with the Giants where they, they have this attitude that they're better than other NFL organizations, and they definitely believe they're better than the Jets. And that's why I think so many people have been entertained by the mess this week, the self-inflicted wound to the foot that the Giants created, because they do have that arrogance. They do. They do. They do. And, and you know, anybody from the Giants, if you're listening to this, first of all, thank you. And second of all, if you don't like it, it's not my problem. You're the ones who created the sense of arrogance. Don't get mad at the people who find you arrogant. Get mad at yourselves for allowing yourselves to be viewed by so many as arrogant. And I'll, I, I'm going to peel back the curtain here a little bit. I don't know if I've ever told this story. So what the hell? I'm going to pretend I never have. I think I have. I think I have. Anyway, let me tell it again. Jerry Reese, when we were at one of the league meetings for the first time, once I decided that if I ever really want to be everything that I can be, which really isn't all that much in this business, I need to start traveling to these events and taking advantage of the access and getting to know some of these coaches and general managers and interviewing them. Learning how to come up with quick questions on the fly, good follow-up, good back and forth, good rapport, good chemistry. And Jerry Reese agreed to sit for an interview, and he was horrible. It, it was like trying to pull a tooth out of an alligator's mouth. It was horrible. And I almost said to him, and I would say it now, I think. At the time, I was closer to the Chris Farley School of Interviewing Skills do you, do you, do you, do you remember, do you remember when Dave Tyree caught the ball with his helmet? Anyway, I almost said to him, why did you agree to do this? What's your point? What, what is it? You, you wanted to just come and give me nothing. You wanted to come act like a tough guy. And I ask you a bunch of questions and you say, you're not going to respond or you're not. 
I, it was weird. It was weird. So I, I'm not taking any particular joy in his in his current circumstances. And he's welcome on the show anytime. But the next time he comes on, if he doesn't answer my questions, I'm going to ask him, why the hell did you agree to do this? Anyway, to get back to my original point, the Giants have had like three general managers in the last 80 years or something like that. They're, they're like the Steelers when it comes to coaches. It takes a lot for them to fire a GM. And I think that to the extent the camel's back wasn't broken on Tuesday, before Tuesday, I think the fact that the Eli Manning thing was bungled as badly as it was probably has gotten John Merritt to the point where he's going to fire everybody. Everybody. At all stats are made, Sean Newsom, what's going on between the Finance Committee, Jerry Jones, and Goodell? Any updates? Well, it's the Compensation Committee. And that is the body that received authority back in May to do a new contract with the commissioner. There were committee meetings this week in advance of the December 13 ownership meetings. And I know some of the Sunday splash reports, deals getting done this week. Committees are getting together. They've got the authority to do it. Maybe the NFL has been pushing that idea. But I don't think the compensation committee is going to do this deal until Jerry Jones has one last chance to pull rabbit out of his hat. Because I think they fear that if they don't give him a chance to muster opposition to the finalized Roger Goodell contract that he will go back on his word that he wasn't going to sue. Because he didn't just say, I'm never suing. He said, I'm not suing because the owners are going to have a chance to give their input on this contract on December the 13th. Well, if you don't give them the opportunity to give input on December the 13th, then maybe Jerry says, you've failed to satisfy the basic condition for me to not sue. So for now, nothing is happening that we know about. And remember one of my big, bold predictions from Monday they will not get this deal done with Goodell before December 13. So far, so far, I have yet to urinate down my leg when it comes to that specific prediction. At Uncle Ben, again, any chance the Giants can save face with Eli for another season? I think it would take. Remember the, the Donovan McNabb benching 10 years ago? Was it 10 years ago? It was nine years ago, 2008. They were getting blown out in Baltimore. He got benched for Kevin Cobb. Remember him? Kevin Cobb. He got benched for Cobb in the second half, and he was upset about it. And they put him back in. They played the Cardinals on Thanksgiving, and they destroyed the Cardinals. And I don't think they lost another game until they played the Cardinals in the NFC Championship game. And a lot of people thought the Eagles were going to win that game, but the Cardinals did. Remember after that, the reports that Donovan McNabb wanted a financial apology? I think it'd take a hell of a financial apology at this point to get Eli Manning to change his mind about the Giants. And he'd have to be guaranteed that he is the starter, and he's the starter no matter what. And he's the starter until he's done being the starter. And I don't think the Giants are going to be willing to do whatever would necessary to be done in order to get Eli Manning to want to stick around. I think it's very simple going forward. I think the Giants will try to find a trade partner, try to get Eli to waive his no-trade clause, and I think Eli will say, shove it up your ass sideways. I got a $5 million roster bonus due on the third day of the league year. Pay me or cut me. I'm not agreeing to a trade. And, oh, if you pay me and keep me, I'm not going to be here for the offseason program. And you know what? All those things that I used to do, coming in on my day off, studying my playbook at home, being involved in the game plan creation, I'm not doing any of that either. So you can keep me if you want and pay me $5 million and then pay me another $11 million, but I'm not doing any of the other stuff. I think he's going to be gone. At all stats are made, has another question. What are the impacts of the deal reached by the Players Coalition? What are some of the terms of the deal? How do you see this? As well as a split among player representatives playing out. That's a lot. There's a lot of questions there, Sean. But that's all right. I've written about this, and let me summarize my views on it very briefly. I think it's a deal about nothing. 
I think the NFL has gotten nothing out of it. And you know what? That's appropriate because ultimately, $89 million over seven years is about 400000 per team per year for seven years. So what? It's a drop in the bucket. What are they really doing here? They're trying to persuade players to stand for the anthem without treating it as a business transaction. The players are giving up nothing. The league is giving up not much of anything, grand scheme of things. The league is hoping that this problem goes away without the league having to treat it like any other problem where the players have leverage and the league has to do something about it to get the players to agree to stand for the anthem. And I think from the players' perspective, it becomes very delicate because you undermine the reasons why you're not standing for the anthem if you start treating your power to not stand for the anthem as something that gets bargained for and exchanged. So I'm not impressed by much of this. I think the league is doing the absolute minimum that it can in an effort not to put the fire out, but just to get it down to embers with the understanding that those embers can take over again at some point. But I don't think the league is willing to do what's necessary to put the fire out completely. And I think the, the fracture among the players coalition at some level, even if they don't realize it, it's a reflection of the fact that they, they have more power over the league than they are acting like they have. They have the league against the ropes on this. But it is a tough spot because if you're committed to the principle, it's hard to justify treating the power that you have over the league as the typical kind of power, like the way the NFL would lord it over the players and the way the NFL always does. Oh, hey, well, you don't like the current personal conduct policy. Well, you agreed to it. So if you want to do something about it, we'll see you at the bargaining table. See, the league will gladly give up whatever powers it has if it can trade them in for something better. The players who finally have the league right where the players want the league. The players feel too strongly about the principle to treat it like something that you would just trade. So that's my assessment of where this is. A couple more questions. At Dustin Low Miller, is Des Bryant a Cowboy next year? Also, can Stats' punishment for being late on Tuesday be that he has to coach Tennessee next season? I would not wish that even on my worst enemy or stats. I don't think Des Bryant's going to be a Cowboy next year. I talked to Shereen Williams, who covered the Cowboys for years before she joined us earlier this year. And they're not going to be able to afford what it's going to take to keep Des Bryant. They're not going to be able to afford to pay him. So he he's going to have to take less to stay. And the question is, will he take less to stay? They're not going to be able to justify paying him what he's due to get based upon his performance. So this could be his last year. All right, you know what? There's plenty more questions here, but I've talked for too long. I appreciate your questions. I appreciate your support of the PFTPM podcast. We'll do it again on Friday, a full week 13 preview. And until then, profootballtalk.com, around the clock, NBC Tonight, Washington at Dallas, PFT Live on Friday morning. Chris Sims will be in. We'll get you ready for week 13. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Review the podcast, rate the podcast, download, subscribe, do everything you can, both PFTPM and PFT Live. Thanks again for some of your time. We'll talk Friday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.